And I'm Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We're a podcast dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcasts in. Today, we're excited to review the hottest updates in lymphoma from the American Society of Hematology or ASH 2023 meeting held just a week ago in San Diego. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Toby Eyre, who was so great on last year's ASH recap episode that we've invited him back to join us again this year. <laughs> Dr. Eyre is a consultant hematologist at the University of Oxford in the UK who specializes in the management of CLL and lymphoma. Toby completed his doctorate on the topic of early phase clinical trials and biomarker studies in lymphoid malignancies and serves on the low grade and elderly high grade lymphoma groups of the UK's NCRI. Thank you so much for joining us again for our ASH highlights episode, Toby. Pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Eddie. Great to have you. And I thought we'd start with mantle cell lymphoma, one of your favorite topics, and perhaps to start with the Bowman trial. Now, to give some context for listeners, TP53 mutated mantle cell lymphoma has perhaps the worst outcomes amongst mantle cell lymphoma, particularly pronounced in the Nordic 2 and Nordic 3 trials, uh, and uh, you know even worse than just 17p deleted or, or TP53 deleted. And so this trial um, took 25 patients with TP53 mutated, I think the first trial dedicated to TP53 mutated mantle cell, and combined xanabrutinib with venetoclax and abinutuzumab. What did you make of the results of the Bowdoin trial, Toby? Yeah, thanks, Eddie. So, yeah, as you say, the sort of first study we've seen in this particularly high-risk population, so this represents about 10 to 15% of mantle cell lymphoma. You alluded to those results from the pooled Nordic analysis, the median progression-free survival under a year with standard intensive immunochemotherapy, including an autologous transplant consolidation, and the median overall survival in these kind of patients, you know, are potentially under two years. Although, of course, that is based on a fairly small patient number, it still sort of suggests that these patients do really badly. The Bovin study was looking at a novel triplet, so Xanabrutinib, a second generation BTK inhibitor, Venetoclax, a BCL2 inhibitor, and Abinutuzumab, second generation type 2 glycogen glycoengineered CD20 antibodies. So um, a triplet that's been studied in chronic lymphocytic leukemia or, or variants of this triplet looking at different BTK, BCL2 inhibitors have been studied in you know a range of malignancies, most commonly CLL. But this is the first time we've seen this triplet in the frontline setting in mantle cell lymphoma. So looking at non-chemotherapy-based treatment in this setting and the, the the CR rates really high nearly 90% the undetectable MRD rates were really high and one of the nice things about this study is actually there were some MRD guided stopping rules in the clinical trial which is yeah really nice to see as well now we saw two year progression free survival data presented and the two year PFS was up at over 70% obviously pretty wide confidence intervals given the size of the study but but even given that compared to what we have historically this does look to be a an advancement in our, our potential treatment options and treatment approach and certainly really speaks to the future of moving these highly effective agents further forward in our treatment algorithms and particularly those with you know, potentially very high risk disease. So is this a new standard of care now? Well, of course, that depends on all sorts of things, doesn't it? Sort of access primarily. I suppose if I could give it tomorrow to a patient outside of a clinical trial, I would. Now, some places around the world can do that. Other places can't. If I could, I would. Absolutely. I mean, I think these results were real standout results from ASH and a very exciting study from what was basically two very large US centres working collaboratively. So I think the study is going to be doubled in number. There's going to be up to 50 patients in the trial. So that will give a, a nicer sample size, give us a bit more clarity 
a more understanding about p53 but yeah a fantastic academic study for sure and how do you think about you know in in such a high risk group we're not probably going to get a randomized trial no. so you know is it is that because of the difference with the historical controls is the magnitude of difference that is enough to provide you confidence or how do you think about that kind of yeah i think so i mean you know absolutely of course you're extrapolating basically small subsets from historical phase 2 studies with frontline phase 2 selected patients we didn't have data on time from diagnosis to treatment. We didn't have the screening logs. So we don't know whether some of the sort of super high risk TP53 patients um, maybe didn't make it onto study, sort of uh, somewhat akin to maybe the historical information we had from double hits where we thought everybody was awful because that was the group they were tested in. We don't know whether the same sort of rules might apply to TP53. So I think TP53 mutations in mantle, broadly speaking, need studying a lot in a lot more detail in much broader patient populations to understand the heterogeneity within those. But all those things put it to one side. I mean, you can't argue with sort of no patients alive at sort of two years versus 73 or something like that, you know? So, you know, I, I think it's a, I, th I think it's a, a, a step in the right direction and, you know, it's a very hard group to do an isolated randomized clinical oh, trial. Sorry, and I, sorry. you know, I don't think we'll see that. I think what we'll see in the future probably is detailed subsets from large randomized studies using potentially triplet non-chemotherapy based approaches, perhaps not with this combination, but with similar type combinations in the future. And, that, and, and and it'll probably just be there'll be approval based on a triplet in all patients. And we'll just know that the TP53 patients will almost certainly be the ones to benefit the most. And I didn't want to let you get away with that hard question. So in the this nice hypothetical world where you can access this therapy, would you be happy stopping with the MRD-guided MRD guided approach without consolidation with any kind of transplant or CAR-T? Or how would you yeah. be thinking about it in that hypothetical world. Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose the study was was MRD-driven because it could be. There was access to the technology. Uh, this was a small number of centres, you know, highly sort of organised academic centres, large academic centres in the US. Extrapolating that more broadly, of course, is more difficult. I wouldn't say the story on MRD and Mantle is by any means sorted. So I think that we need to understand which technique is most 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 well validated most applicable most available and most cost effective and i think all of those things need to really be understood first before we think about mrd on a sort of large scale i wouldn't say i have a sort of validated technique that's available for myself in routine clinical practice in the uk and so i would probably treat what would I do? <laughs> I'd give fixed duration BCL2 and CD20. I'd probably continue the BTK to progression. That's probably what I'd do if I had a patient tomorrow and you said, Toby, you know, pick and mix, choose those three agents. How would you treat patients? But that's not quite what the study did. But they had the ability to stop therapy based on detailed data. I like that. Pick and mix. I might use that going forward. Roger, I think that's, you had a question. That's, that's hematology these days, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, granted, this was a small number of patients, but did you see any significant toxicity signal or any fatal toxicity with this triplet regimen? 
Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, as I said, these are pretty highly selected patients given in a clinical trial setting where investigators are really quite experienced at using the combination, including using the BCL2. But the, the BCL2 is the main issue here just because of the rampart phase. But you debulk with the BTK and the CD20. So you've got nice debulking strategies before going in, into that. The other thing is that Boven regime has been used in CLL as well in that center or in those centers. So they have experience from a CLL trial um, of the triplet um but i'd say generally speaking you know we there's increasing experience of these kind of agents in combination so i don't think there was a particular issue around toxicity i mean neutropenia is the main issue with the triplet and infection but nothing kind of concerning outside those two pretty common toxicities I think next we'll move on to the Sympatico trial, the long-awaited Sympatico trial presented in the late-breaking abstract um, session, which was of 267 patients with uh, relapse and refractory mantle cell lymphoma, comparing ibrutinib plus venetoclax versus ibrutinib plus placebo in a randomised fashion. And we saw that the median progression-free survival was 31.9 months in comparison to 22 months, so about 10 months. Mm -hmm. Improvement with a hazard ratio of 0.65 and an increase in the CR rate from 32% to 54%, which is not unexpected given we're adding a BCL2 inhibitor to a, a BTK. So yeah, what, what did you think of those results? And we'll sort of dive in, 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 in more detail, but first, what did you think of them? No, thank you. Well, I suppose the study met its primary endpoint. So, you know, we saw an advantage to adding the BCL2 inhibitor. I think I looked at those progression-free survival curves and I, I was a little, I think my first gut reaction was a little bit disappointed because we know that doublet is so effective in CLL. We've seen data in a small number of patients in the AIM study and then in the OASIS-2 study, is, sorry, the OASIS-1 study of it in relapse and in the frontline setting. And it looks really potent, very good in high-risk disease, very active in TP53 mutated disease. So I sort of had really quite high hopes. And, you know, and there is a progression-free survival advantage, I think, no doubt about that. And that looks very clear, but it's not enormous. It's not sort of game-changing on a sort of massive scale, I wouldn't say. I think there's a bit of nuance here in terms of interpreting this. I think we need to understand which in a bit more detail, actually. I don't think we have all the detail around sort of which patients uh, might benefit in terms of the toxicity, efficacy sort of risk ratio that we're used to dealing with the whole time in our clinical practice. It's which patients are sort of fit enough, will tolerate the combination well, and will get the main most benefit from that. But I, I suspect it will be approved based on this data. I mean, it's a positive, big, randomized international trial. We don't see loads of those in relapsed mantle, and so we should sort of celebrate that. But I, I think I want to know a little bit more about who I can give this to safely. And I want to know, again, perhaps a little bit more about who might benefit from it. As I actually asked the question in the late breaking abstract, so, you know, we know a bit about that doublet in the frontline setting in CLL, big difference in toxicity between the sort of glow population and the captivate population. I sort of want to understand a bit more about that group or those sort of age groups, comorbidity groups, et cetera, in, in the relapsed mantle to get a feel for actually who should get BTK monotherapy, who might get a doublet safely. So I think there's still some open questions here. We, you know, we haven't seen a sort of parallel manuscript, which we sometimes see in these big randomized studies at ASH. So we'll have to wait for that. And hopefully the reviewers will scrutinize it carefully so we get as much detail as possible. But yeah, I think um, for younger, potentially younger, fitter patients, particularly also those with you know, high risk features, 
I suspect this this doublet will have a role. I think it shows BCL2, BTK combinations are highly effective in mantle and do increase the depth of response. And actually, it may, maybe in the long term, actually, that might have more implications to the frontline setting than it will in relapsed disease. And of course, we've got this open question around ibrutinib access in some parts of the globe, obviously not in Europe at the moment where ibrutinib is the only BTK we use. But obviously in the US, there's been quite a lot of change recently in terms of what's approved. And this is, you know, the ibrutinib is your control arm, you know, the, so there are some people who believe that, for example, Zanabrutinib is, is a more effective BTK. And, you know, how would that look against this doublet? Difficult to be sure. We've seen advantage against it and against Ibrutinib and CLL. You know, would this be the same? Who knows? We'll never know. But yeah, to, to my mind, a positive study. Hopefully it will gain approval. The question is who you should give it to. So you mentioned the second gen BTKs. The AEs in this study, there was a bit more diarrhea, a bit more neutropenia, and anemia and thrombocytopenia and a bit more nausea. Do you think the if we were substituting in a second gen BTK in that combination, I'm sure those trials will eventually read out. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, do you think those AEs, you know, they're obviously not necessarily the AEs that we typically look at first and second gen BTKs and say, oh, look, it's way better in the second gen setting. So do you think that those AEs are kind of going to be pretty similar if you're substituting? And I know we're in well off piece territory here, but <laughs> sort of partly due to the regulatory context you referred to in the US, as is why I'm asking that question. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you think potentially a little less GI toxicity. And by the way, 65% sort of um, diarrhea and nearly 10% grade three diarrhea is substantial to- GI toxicity. I mean, let's not sort of underplay that that's you know a lot of patients getting a lot of gi toxicity in it, with that combination whether that would be genuinely better with the second gen btk inhibitors uh, perhaps diarrhea is a little bit less in the sort of cll studies of a plus versus a cala it's fairly similar maybe a little bit less in the head-to-heads with zanu cytopenias particularly with zanu actually about the same most of the benefit with Acalor or Zanu is obviously cardiac. And then with Acalabrutinib, there's benefit in terms of things like myalgia, arthralgia, hypertension as well. So, yeah, cytopenia is perhaps less so. So I don't know. I mean, it's a slightly moot point and we won't see, I don't think, the studies of the second gen BTK inhibitors in relapsed disease. I think what we'll see, and what we are seeing moving forward is... For example, Acala, Retux, Venn in the frontline setting, I suspect, although this hasn't been confirmed, we'll see Zanabrutinib plus Clax as a new name for their BCL, for Zanu's, for um, Bygene's BCL2 plus, plus Retux. I'm sure we'll see that triplet probably in a pivotal study of some sort in the frontline setting. I don't think we've seen details of that as yet, but I suspect we'll see that some point in the future. So BCL2s very, very much have a role, but I think and toxicity is less generally in the frontline setting, obviously, for a variety of reasons. The younger patients, you know, chemotherapy naive, et cetera, et cetera, less marrow involvement. So I suspect toxicity and sort of cytopenias, et cetera, will be less. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. No, totally. I mean, I mostly ask because if you're, you know, not everyone, I think, in the US has yet adopted the triangle regimen, which still leaves kind of BCL2s in the second line setting. And so to me, mm-hmm. the kind of relevant clinical question that Sympatico raises right now is if you're using a, BC, a BC, uh, BTK in the second second line setting, should you be adding vanilloclax in the kind of uh, yeah. pick and mix uh, context, which is why I asked that question. <laughs> yeah, but- I mean, p- potentially, I suppose um, 
Finesca has never been approved, has it? And it's never undergone a pivotal trial in in a, or a, a phase two pivotal study in mantle cell lymphoma. So that's certainly the sort of, I guess, the pure question to ask, you know, is two better than one given sequentially after the next? The reality is, though, is, of course, Ven has never been routinely available broadly for mantle cell lymphoma, unlike, unlike say, a brucinib. So it's quite a hard it's quite a hard sort of thing to model outside of a clinical trial at a later point. But of course, you know, it'd be very interesting to know what therapies were given subsequently was much BCL2 inhibitor given following the abrusion. The data that's in the literature, including a UK study that I put together a few years ago, shows that actually the, the benefit's fairly transient for venetoclax post-covalent BTK. And probably it's better off giving in combination much earlier on. But yeah. I think there might there's obviously a bit of off, off label use in the US as we know, but but there's very little actually outside of that setting. Yes, I guess it, the proof will be in the pudding depending on what the rates of crossover are when the Sympatico trial is published. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll look out for that. <laughs> I'm sure Twitter uh, will look out for that. <laughs> absolutely, as they should. Um, yeah. So I wanted to move to CLL, and uh, I think the headline study there is the FLARE trial. Now, of course, you're biased because you're a co-author, but interested in your insights nonetheless. And uh, FLARE was a, is, a, is obviously a very large UK multi-centre adaptive trial in CLL, and this mm-hmm. readout was comparing FCR, so chemoimmunotherapy, compared with MRD-guided duration of ibrutinib plus venetoclax in un- patients with untreated CLL who required therapy. And the unsurprising bit is the hazard ratio for PFS was 0.13 and for overall survival, 0.31. So clearly, ibrutinib plus venetoclax beat FCR, but anyone, I think, could have bet on that result. I think the more interesting stuff regards the MRD and MRD stopping and how that compares with fixed duration therapy, which we've obviously seen in multiple other CLL trials. So first, I wanted to ask you about the MRD. How is the MRD performed to what depth, bone marrow, blood, and how is that relevant in the CLL context? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So so MRD was performed both in peripheral blood and bone marrow, although, of course, there were less sequential bone marrow samples throughout the study. And it's hard to rely on bone marrow results to be the result that guides your stopping rules because... Clearly, it's much more unreliable to always get bone marrow samples. All you need is a patient to say, no, thank you. And and you lose your sort of key endpoint for decision making. So peripheral blood is the, the sort of decision making point. And as you say, MRD guided. So patients essentially had twice as much therapy as the time it took them to become MRD negative. So it's effectively personalized therapy based on the sensitivity of one's disease to that to that very effective doublet, as you've already described. And no one was, as you say, surprised by the fact that it beat FCR. I think some people might be slightly surprised. Um, Just to push back on your statement a little bit about the magnitude of benefit at the time point. So this is a three-year data, has a ratio of 0.13, very few progression events in the I plus V arm. And remember, this is therapy not in a highly selective group of patients this the flare study is delivered across sort of 70 sites across the uk right across the uk across a range of sort of socioeconomic groups etc and to get an overall survival readout at that time point as well was was well to some degree a little surprising but actually speaks to the sort of benefit of the experimental arm 
But MRD was tested peripheral blood and marrow. So some correlative science that was then subsequently sort of shown in the next abstract. But in terms of the decision making, it was peripheral blood. And up until now, we haven't seen results in that experimental arm as good in CLL. So progression free survival at at three years over 90, I think over 95 percent. And, you know, if you sort of do the thing you're not supposed to do, which is cross compare across I plus V from the Captivate study, it does look potentially better. Of course, what you really need is an MRD guided trial versus fixed duration to really hone down on the benefit of the benefit of the MRD guided approach. But until we get to that point, you know, we could hypothesize that this perhaps looks better, but you, you can't know that with absolute certainty. What it does do is it provides personalized therapy for patients. So pe people who are highly sensitive to the disease can stop therapy early and minimize toxicity and the reverse also being true. So it certainly makes scientific sense and has a great rationale behind it. Of course, the main the major question here is what on earth do we what on earth do people do with those results? What how do people nationalize MRD testing? Are we at a point where we look at those results and say, okay, right, that needs to happen now? Or is this a point in time where um where people need to start developing clinical trial protocols where MRD guided therapy is one of the arms of treatment? Because up until now, up until this big randomized study, we've seen sort of some neat data from sort of smallish phase two studies. For example, Matt, Matt Davis put together a very nice study of, I think, Fen, Akala, Obin and did something similar. But it's a kind of descriptive phase two study. Yeah. So it's it sort of raises more questions than it does actually provide answers, which is quite interesting. And the other thing that will be really interesting to see what industry do with this. So, you know, will the big companies with a lot of money and the BCL2, BTK inhibitors you know, believe that going beyond fixed duration, which of course, you know, we all know is just widely applicable and easy to deliver. And, you know, when you're thinking of sort of market share and deliverability, it's so different to this strategy. Now, will they sort of buy into a strategy where MRD testing is part of the package of, of a therapeutic combination? Or Will they just say, oh, it's sort of nice, but we're going to stick with our fixed duration. Thanks very much, because you can give it in, well, pretty much any country in the world, basically. I know what I think, but science and pragmatism may not be entirely the same, entirely aligned. But that's the sort of that's the challenge, I think, that this 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 study really brings to light or at least sort of brings up a new debate in frontline CLL, actually. Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me to see was that at three years, 58% of the I plus V group had stopped. Four years, it was 72%, and five years, it was 78%. And, mm. and, and that's from very helpful table in the supplement. Thank you. And and so, you know, to me, there are there's obviously a group there that are, not obviously, but perhaps benefiting from that ongoing therapy. And as you say, I think one of the really interesting things is to uh, also consider the question of, you know, are we curing? And I want to ask you this question. Do you think, what's your hunch? Are we curing people with this kind of MRD guided approach to, to doublets in CLL? Yeah, it's a good question. I won't hold you. I'm going to stick my neck out and say, if we're curing patients with FCR, which I think people believe we are, and I think if we're curing patients with Veno, which I think probably we are, then yes, I suspect we're curing some patients, low risk patients. Yes. But probably some patients with I plus V with shorter duration therapy. But I think we have a, a higher chance of potentially 
curing more patients. I time will tell. But I think, you know, I'm fairly convinced that I'm fairly convinced that, for example, Veno will cure patients. The MRD negativity rates are clearly higher with Veno and I plus V than immunochemotherapy. And actually the studies that we'll come on to, the Captivate study, et cetera, and the GLOW study as well, show particularly in the mutated disease patients, you know, four or five, five year follow-up progression-free survivals of sort of over over 80%, I think a proportion of those patients will be cured. Yes, I don't think we can kind of fully identify them yet. I mean, they'll be in the mutated group, almost undoubtedly, but but yeah, I think we probably will. Whether we'll cure more with MRD-driven therapy than fixed duration? Ugh. I think you need an I think you need an MRD guided study versus a fixed duration study to actually to really know. Really know. Yeah. And you did remind me of another question I want to ask you, which is I think there was an ibrutinib or multiple arms of flare. So yep. kind of <clears throat> when and or what how does the decision in an adaptive trial go into deciding when you compare two different arms? Are we likely to see <laughs> a comparison of the I plus V versus the I arms yes. of the flare study? Yes, we should do. But it's that, yeah, I mean, the statistics of an adaptive design of 1600 patients are complex and I, for one, don't fully understand them. But yes, we will. We will need adequate numbers of events, but we can compare ibrutinib-based therapy versus I plus V. We have done in the sort of MRD, there was an MRD abstract previously presented that sort of was of some interest but of course there were massively higher mrd negativity rates with i plus v no no surprise there but yes we'll see we should see a readout of i versus versus i plus v the whole premise of the study is you're still although when you add arms you still will ensure adequate stratification between the arms and the randomizations as the trial goes along so yes we should see that in time fairly soon hopefully I mean, not many people are now using a in front line if they've got access to second gen BTK inhibitors, but I still think sort of proof of principle I versus I plus V will be a really important study endpoint. And also we'll see that from the CLL 17 study as well. So we'll have more than one data set to look at that question. Yeah, I had a quick follow-up question on the MRD depth that you use in CLL. For example, in myeloma, you know, we struggle with flow cytometry because there is a lot of variability between institutions and we prefer adaptive NGS MRD because it's standardized. So in CLL, is the flow standardized and what depth do you typically use to call MRD negative currently? Yeah, so... I mean, there's a little, there's obviously sort of studies ongoing comparing different techniques. And actually, there's a very interesting readout from the CLL 13 study where actually NGS looked to be a little bit more sensitive in terms of sort of predicting for improved disease control over time. But routinely, flow based te- technology has been very well validated and the technique has been well honed over many years by the Leeds team in the UK. So, flow is what the study used basically as a primary readout bearing in mind you know by the way this study obviously was sort of designed the best part of 10 years ago or started the discussions around 10 years ago and has been you know the mrd technique has been sort of honed over that time by andy rallstrom you you basically need to clone andy rallstrom and put him in every country in the world set up a lab and then you'd be fine you could do mrd mrg driven studies but (laughs) sadly we're not allowed to do that are we (laughs) in all seriousness, I mean, it actually takes you know, clearly quite a skillful lab to be able to safely validate that test, to be able to, to perform it on a national scale and, you know, re- reliably perform the test so that you can, you know, response adapt based on it. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really 
insightful. Thanks, Toby. I want to also pick on the Captivate trial briefly, which obviously Captivate had an arm where patients received fixed duration ibrutinib plus venetoclax and an arm where they received MRD-guided treatment. Uh, But I wanted to focus particularly on the group that got ibrutinib retreatment, because I think that, you know, if we talk a lot about venetoclax retreatment, but the advent of fixed duration therapy also suggests that ibrutinib uh, retreatment might be possible. And so the first interesting point from the study was that the estimated 4.5 year rate of freedom from next treatment was 82%, which is cool to give some patients some time off therapy. And of the uh, patients who had progression, 28 of them reinitiated reinitiated with just ibrutinib and six with ibrutinib plus venetoclax with an overall response rate in, in both those groups over 80% and a median time on retreatment of 14 to 17 months. So uh, I, I really want to get your thoughts on how you would think about endpoints in CLL trials as a result of this. Should we be thinking about the total time of benefit from the drugs that the patient has access to, be that Veno or IV or, you know, whatever combination, or mm. how would you think about endpoints in the context of many patients uh, who have received fixed duration treatment being able to receive retreatment? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And actually, sometimes I think fixed duration therapies get a bit of a raw deal there because, you know, the PFF, PFS events don't biologically basically mean the same thing. We Maybe one of the sort of classic subgroups that actually really suffers here is, or not, um, suffers but the classic subgroup we talk about here is p53 where pretty much every e- expert around the globe recommends continuous btk inhibitor but of course all those progression events in 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 those patients are all disease resistance whereas they're they're clearly not in veno treated patients or i plus v treated patients and you know this study demonstrates nicely that you can re-establish disease control with btk based therapy and we've also got data from Murano, there's ongoing studies in the frontline setting, and also some real world data suggests that venetoclax retreatment retreatment is an effective strategy. So, yeah, should we be using PFS two with second line therapy continuous rather than PFS one? Maybe it's a bit more difficult to model. We may start to see that in a future where more and more therapies become fixed duration. And this may not, of course, just apply to CLL. You might see it more with, say, bispecific antibodies or more combinations of other novel approaches that can drive deep responses where retreatment's an option. I certainly think that's where CLL is heading and, and some other diseases as well. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess said it becomes a question of what regulators accept when it comes to at least, you know, pivotal registrational studies and also what the field accepts more broadly. Um, there hasn't been a huge push for it in CLL as yet, but that might change. That's That answer slightly sits on the fence, I know, but that's partly because I think, you know, we've still got a, a very much an evolving field. I mean, we're only just starting to see retreatment BTK data, for example. It's only really in the last kind of, sort of six months we're starting to see that you can retreat people with. I don't think people are surprised, but it's still fairly new. So maybe is the answer to that. Yeah, I'm not sure companies will like it, obviously, because of the timelines involved. They're always as you know, wanting to push for sort of earlier and earlier readouts of, you know, surrogate markers and so forth. And actually we've seen co-primary endpoints with MRD, you know, obviously from, for example, the CLL 13 study, a co-primary endpoint of 15 month MRD, which was, you know, acceptable. 
So I don't know. It slightly goes against sort of at least timelines. It might be biologically and sort of clinically a sort of practical thing, but whether that really makes its way through to what happens with the FDA and so forth, I'm I'm not so sure. I mean, I think it's important clinically for people to know that in fixed duration settings that pretreatments <laughs> can be worthwhile trying. And I think it's important, as you say, when comparing different trials and different strategies to remember what a PFS means in this context versus what it means in that context. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I th- I mean, I think we'll see we'll see it when the results potentially benefit the company. So, for example, there is obviously a reason why we're seeing a brutinibri treatment in this study, right? This study follow-up is deliberately long to capture these events because this is a, you know, obviously a J&J sponsored study. We're not seeing post-protocol care broadly captured in as detailed a way as this. So, you know, maybe we'll see, for example, I don't know, when we see Mosin fixed duration in FL in the frontline setting, they'd probably be wise to stick in a Mosin retreatment arm and collect data and provide PFS2 with that strategy, for example, in the future. I can sort of see a an era going in, in that way. Or even, you know, if we see BCL2, BTK, for example, the Biogene combination, if we see that in the frontline setting, they might be wise to stick in the protocol retreatment with the doublet and provide PFS2 there, for example, with long-term follow-up. I I can sort of see that happening, but it will be, at least for now, from registrational studies like this, would very much be on the, I think, company's own terms. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Let's jump to Hodgkin lymphoma briefly to sure. talk about the elderly or unfit patients over the age of 60 years uh, r- reported at ASH. So SWOG1826, as anyone who's listened to our great episode with Nancy Butler will know, is a large randomized trial of nivolumab AVD versus brentuximab vedotin AVD for untreated Hodgkin lymphoma which was initially presented at ASCO this year and showed an improved uh, PFS and improved toxicity and, dare I say, also improved cost for nivolumab AVD versus brentuximab vedotin AVD. And the results for patients uh, over the age of 60 years presented at ASH were, I guess, even more impressive with a one-year PFS of 93% compared to 64%, a one-year overall survival of 95 versus 83% with a p-value of 0.09, so not quite significant, and fewer AEs in terms of neuropathy, diarrhea, and nausea, and febrile neutropenia in nivolumab AVD. So the magic question is, one year data enough to shift your practice, Toby? Yeah, it's a great question. So not normally. I mean, obviously, Hodgkin results, you you normally need sort of long-term follow-up for, for example, OS and secondary events and, you know, the the BVA, you know, the Echelon 1 study took a long time, for example, to show an OS benefit. So normally you need long-term follow-up. But I think here there's a substantial difference in terms of toxicity profile, in terms of non-relapse mortality. I think four versus something like 10, 10%. And in the 60s to 70s, the TRM was 14%, I think, with BVAVD. I, I, I don't think. BVABD given in combination as it is in this study is probably the best way to give it in older patients. I think probably the sequential approach um, from Andy Evans' JCO paper is probably a neater way to give it. So giving BV and then ABVD and then BV, I think is less toxic. But I think you do get substantial toxicity with BVABD. And I think it obviously speaks to, the study obviously speaks to that. I think the improved efficacy is probably a combination of factors 
Nevo clearly in the elderly doesn't induce too much sort of immune related tox. There's probably some immune senescence that actually sort of plays into to actually that benefit. It's very well tolerated, but also clearly providing the disease control that's adequate. So with little in the way of sort of concerning toxicity. So yes, is a, is a sort of shorter answer to to that question. Again, it's an access thing. I mean, we we in the UK we give response adapted therapy and say those who are sixty to to seventy and still use a, a rathal based based approach in many instances. And actually, out you know a lot of places don't have access to BVAVD anyway. But in those places that do, I think they shift overnight actually, and that's quite an unusual thing to say with a one year readout. But you've got it's a, obviously a modest sized i can't remember actually if it's a post hoc sort of unplanned or pre-planned analysis but nonetheless it's that the magnitude of difference is substantial and there's nearly a statistically significant os benefit of one year which i suspect will will probably become more significant over time so yeah i would change my practice based on this if yes, I, I think BV, it really if uh, i use bvavd yeah no i mean well i think this is the, the other challenge in because Australia is the same, that where you sort of never really had BVABD in the frontline setting, will those places decide to fund NEVO-AVD either for all comers or in the elderly in the frontline setting, I think will be interesting to see. Yeah. Given yeah. that sort of all yeah. the benefits line up in terms of different <laughs> things, but where you're comparing the sort of almost leapfrogging of BVABD in many places where it hasn't been funded. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we would use sort of generally ABVD times two and then pretty much always drop the BLEO after two cycles, sort of regardless of the PET based on some of the data in elderly patients around BLEO toxicity and infective toxicity in older patients. So and I'd be amazed if, you know, if, if Nevo AVD isn't better than that. So, yeah, I I would I'd use it tomorrow if I could based on these results, even without that, even without availability of that control arm because I think those results really sort of speak for themselves. So yeah, it's an access issue as much as anything. Let's, and a big year for Hodgkin, let's jump to, to DLBCL. I thought the smart stop study from Jason Weston and MD Anderson was very provocative. So in this study, <laughs> and c- correct me if I get any of the trial design stuff wrong, because it's quite <laughs> complex, but... It is complicated, yes. <laughs> from my uh, uh, reading of the slides, the regim- regimen that was being tested is called ULTRA, which is lenalidomide, tafacitumab, rituximab, and acalabrutinib. And... You've got four, so it was a small but very provocative, as I said, trial with 30-something patients where you've got four cycles of ultra. And then if you're in a CR after four cycles, you get two cycles of CHOP plus six cycles of ultra. Uh, Whereas if you are in a PR or less, then you get six cycles of CHOP plus six cycles of ultra. And impressively, 19 patients, 63%, had a CR. And so those 19 patients only received two cycles of CHOP. And of course, the impressive part is that the PFS and overall survival curves are completely flat, like many of those early nivolumab curves in Hodgkin. And there was also undetectable CTDNA in a third of, of patients getting the ultra regimen. So I would love to hear thoughts both on this trial general, specifically, but also generally on kind of how we go about beating chemotherapy and DLBCL. <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks, Eddie. Yeah, it's provocative. It's certainly interesting. It's brave. So credit to Jason and his team for thinking outside the box here. So yeah, absolutely. So this this comes off the back of a study called, I think, the Smart Start study, which was where a, a sort of similar type design where linalidomide Ibrutinib and rituximab was used in combination and sort of debulked patients and enabled a, a reduction in chemotherapy number. I suppose the point here is you're using sort of theoretically synergistic non-chemotherapy based approaches to induce deep remissions and limit the number of cycles of chemotherapy. And actually, they up to this point at least prove that you can do that in at least two two thirds of patients, you you could argue the other third of patients are getting substantially more therapy than they would have otherwise had. But you could also argue that in the long term, if those patients don't progress, then then maybe that's a benefit to them. So yes, I mean, the the regime is sort of designed to target the non-germinal centre group, but there were both germinal centre and non-germinal centre patients in by the in the study by the sort of hands algorithm. But they met their primary endpoint, they 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 aim to show a benefit above a CR rate of 30, I think 36%, which was what the SMART start study showed. And it was 63%, as you mentioned here. And those patients actually only then had two cycles of CHOP. But this is multiple drug companies, multiple agents, multiple companies with different interests and different priorities in terms of the long term. This is not a regime that most places in the globe could put together Um at short notice or ever it's an untested combination in large numbers of patients uh, and the follow-up is i think nine months so there are some caveats here and it needs clearly a large randomized clinical trial but you also need to provide an experimental arm which is applicable beyond you know sites like the md anderson in reality because I'm interested in this study because of the science, not because of the applicability, actually, because I don't see a combination like that ever making it to my clinic. And I suppose that's the challenge, isn't it? You know, you have all these agents, you have the ability to run a a smallish study like this, but how does that ultimately result in practice change? So, yeah, it's tricky. I would also say that if we look over the last, say, you know, if you look over the last 20 years in DWCL, what therapies have genuinely changed practice? Well, they've all been actually sort of ABC, GCB, sort of agnostic therapies, haven't they? Rituximab, glofitimab, even CAR-T therapy, you know, these polituzumab, these therapies that actually... We can debate whether polituzumab is ABC, GCB, agnostic. Oh, yes. yes. Well, yes. Okay. Well, it wasn't initially designed. <laughs> well, it wasn't initially designed to be sort of uh, targeting ABC or GCB, I would argue. But yeah, I mean, I suppose the idea or the, at least the principle initially was that these therapies that have been successful actually have been successful primarily, at least in a designed fashion to be agnostic to those subtypes. And they've been enabled to be given as monotherapy alongside chemotherapy or whatever, you know, in a sort of way that actually enables the broader applicability sort of beyond small, small studies in massive academic centers in the U S. So that's where I see the challenge here. I would welcome a randomized trial. And my question would be what happens if the study is positive? Cause you don't want a situation where you've got an experimental arm that can only be used it can only be used sort of off-label in the US, actually. That's what you want to avoid, I think. 
but maybe that's because I'm a sort of jealous Brit. I don't know. <laughs> quite, quite fun to use the combination, I'm sure. But I mean, I think the reality is for most places in the globe, something like that is inaccessible. Totally. I mean, I think it's sort of interesting to, to me to see how the bi-specific companies are going about this question as well, where many of them are just kind of adding it to or replacing the R in and chop. And the tricky thing, the tricky question for me, I think over the next, or you know, 10 or 20 years in DLBCL is if 60% of patients are cured by R chop or, or perhaps more, how do we have trials that, that help those 35% without necessarily giving more toxicity or changing things up or disadvantaging the patients who were going to be cured anyway. And I think that speaks to a lot of the trial design questions. And so yeah. from that point of view, I think this is a provocative kind of yeah, going think, for the home run, high risk, high reward, perhaps strategy. Yeah, I have no issue with cycle of chemotherapy de-escalation because I think that's the way forward because then the magnitude of benefit beyond RCHOP or polar RCHIP or whatever you could use or your control arm, the magnitude of benefit doesn't have to be as large because your tox profile will probably be improved. So reducing cycles of chemotherapy, that principle, and I, 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 I like, like there are many things I like about this study. The issue and the challenge that, that, that exists here actually is a practical one around access to to novel novel agents <laughs> in this as well the three novel agents i suppose clearly len will become less expensive in time but taffer and a color two completely different companies different priorities different actually disease focus areas etc what do you do with that that's the issue so yeah, chemotherapy de-escalation, absolutely. And actually, I'd like to see, for example, studies where bi-specific antibodies do that. You know, you go in early with maybe CHOP and bi-specifics or whatever, and actually you DLS, you just de-escalate all patients or de-escalate the CRs. You could do that and then actually give fixed duration bi-specific with chemotherapy or some, something like that. You can see actually there's that's not just sort of moving forward with the status quo of adding and adding to RCHOP because because you need to be able to, unless you provide a massive magnitude of PFS benefit, you need to be able to reduce or limit toxicity and cycles of chemotherapy sort of has to be one of those um, major ways forward. Yeah, it's an interesting study for sure. And I think on the topic of biospecifics, we should uh, talk about the Mosin Polar data in DLBCL, which was 108 patients over the age of 80 years or over 65 and ineligible for chemotherapy based on comprehensive uh, geriatric uh, review. And they showed an overall response rate of 64% at the end of therapy with best overall response of 80%, um, with 50% PFS at one year, of course, early data. How do these kind of data factor into your thinking about patients, elderly patients or unfit patients with DLBCL? <laughs> Yeah, so I think, again, quite provocative data, quite a large series in the frontline setting of Mosin Polar. So you've got a slightly interesting group of patients here that are considered fit for a clinical trial and will enroll into a prospective study that patients will come up for infusions, etc., to the treatment unit. They're not all elderly. They generally have a reasonably good ECOG, but for some reason they are considered unsuitable for chemotherapy although um 
in the presentation, in the questions of the presentation of the study, there was a sort of omission, an admission that actually these were probably sort of our mini chop fit patients. So in light of that, I'm not convinced this is sort of a massive step forward at the moment. I think these results are actually pretty equivalent to what you'd see with our mini chop in this kind of group of patients, if I'm honest. And so we have to see randomized data here. And it is interesting that I think these are our mini chop fit patients, basically. It's interesting that investigators were prepared in the frontline setting where we know we cure half of patients. I appreciate we're not curing 80% of elderly patients, right? But investigators are kind of happy to enroll in a sort of completely, with a completely unknown combination in terms of actually toxicity and efficacy in a group of patients who were potentially curable in the frontline setting. So I'd be interested to see what we see with the PFS curve, actually, it's sort of a couple of years, because most in monotherapy doesn't cure as many patients as our mini chop. We've seen a sort of a study previously in a similar type group of patients. And yeah, I, th I think we actually have a little way to go in the elderly in terms of knowing maybe what that balance is around chemotherapy use versus novel novel agent combinations, really. So, yeah, it, interesting, I think quite provocative as well, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about balancing efficacy and toxicity. And as you say, selection for studies is, it's so hard to know. And I think the same is true of Pilot and Alicante, which look at CAR-T and the elderly, mm. is, you know, unless you randomize, is the clinician really sure that this patient is fit or isn't fit? You know, it's such a kind of end of the bed and such a clinician discretion thing that, and it's, you know, there's no statistics you can do once a patient's enrolled or not enrolled in a trial to correct for that kind of investigator decision. So I totally hear and agree what you're, with you with, you know, 100 patients here getting a, pa a combo where these are patients that we know at least some of them could have been cured perhaps by our mini chop or our chop. And so, yeah, the only way really around that is randomization, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the median age of 81 in the study overall, most patients had an ECOG of zero to one. I would just wager most of those patients are fit for our mini chop. So I'm sort of just intrigued that in some respects, people had no problems in enrolling into the study. I mean, I, I can see how you'd sell it to a patient. Don't get me wrong, but you can still get the our mini chop in many cases. I suspect, you know, you have it ready and waiting. True. True. Absolutely. Uh, I guess you don't know sort of how those patients would fare, but I suppose, yeah, I suppose if you had a, I don't know, a sort of um, stable disease after three cycles or whatever, you just switch, don't you? But um, yeah, it's an interesting sort of concept. And I think we're still trying to work out which combinations a bi-specific should be in the frontline setting, particularly in, old, in older patients. And should it be glow fit? Should it be, or should it be, I suppose, from a Roche point of view, should it be glow fit or Mosin? Again, that's a trade off of efficacy and potential toxicity. Totally. Well, I think that brings us pretty close to the hour, and we've covered quite a lot of distance across different lymphoma subtypes. So thank you very much for joining us again for the Ash Lymphoma Roundup. It was a delight to have you back on, and look forward to seeing you soon. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.